If you will turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we finish up our look at this particular book and continue on to 2 Timothy after this one. We're looking at the entire chapter today as we again close out this book. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, as we come to this word concerning your church and how we should act and how we should believe, we pray for your grace to help us to understand, to help us to see our own faults and our own sin that stands in the way of our worship to you, of our service to you and our service to one another in the world. Lord, we pray that you would give us an extra portion of understanding and wisdom concerning how we, your church, as this particular church, should function, as how we should minister to the world around us, and how we should minister to one another. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, as I finished reading this book and... uh, Again, just the last parts here can a lot. There's a lot of how we should behave and how we should act, and uh, some matters of the heart. And a lot of that, I learn a lot about the condition of our souls, the condition of humanity in general, just by listening to the quarrels of the students that I have. I've talked about this before. You know how they they'll sit in the, my classroom in the morning and they'll just go back and forth about the different dramas that they're having and sometimes they'll ask me what I would do or which is usually really simple but their their worlds are really complicated apparently um, and so recently it's made me think why why do we fight over the things that we do and I, I think one of the motivations is we'll see in our text today students are typically fighting over relationships of some kind Uh, Not just boy-girl relationships like we would think, but also just the regular friendships. They see, they in some ways, they see their friendships as as like uh, collateral, as as uh, wealth. Even Uh, they have there's a few people who are attempting to gather up all the friends they can, and they're driving away other people at the same time in order to do that. And there's this constant jockeying for relationships among the students. It's fascinating because if you told them that they would only have contact with two or three of their graduating class, they wouldn't believe you. They, they feel like they're all, they're so tied together. Uh, but when we're kids, right, we see this too, like little kids. We see, you know, these kids playing on a living room floor. They might have 30,000 Legos in front of them. Uh, but yet one kid feels the need to have every single one of them. Why? Why can't they just be content with a normal share of, say, 10,000 Legos? I mean, we've all seen the pile of Legos, right? Why do they need to have them all? Why are they willing to fight over the difference in just a few little pieces when there are so many? Of course, adults do this, too. It's usually over something that's more abstract, like power or reputation, Adults want all the recognition they can get, so they get upset when uh, they have to share it with someone or they're not recognized. Maybe they weren't mentioned as a BDS helper or for that time they gave $3 toward the mission fund or whatever it is. 
And then there's money too, right? You might think that fights over money are more concrete, but they're really not. Uh, Why do wealthy people bicker over a few dollars? It makes no sense. One of the wealthiest people that I know gets upset when gas changes by five cents. Why is that? What are we... What are all those really wealthy and corrupt folks, what do they want? Well, it's the pursuit of money more than anything than actually having it. It's the pursuit of it that drives them. So they're so tied up in that pursuit that they don't actually ever spend any of it. They just got to have more. And you see this in the world. You see this as countries even bicker back and forth for power. And so in our text today, it speaks to this idea, the idea of wanting and needing more even when we ought to have enough, and even when we do have enough, Paul says, and he sums this idea up with the idea of contentment. Contentment is the feeling of fullness when we have kind of, you know, when you've completed your journey and you can rest from your labor, whatever the journey that is, you feel full in that journey. You feel like you've completed it, put a period on the end of it, so to speak. There are many things that we should never stop seeking, of course, Growing in our relationship with God, our families, our church. We should always seek to give more and teach more and love more, obviously. But when it comes to seeking the things of this world, there has to be limits. The things of this world are going away. They're like the wind. They're blowing through for just a time. And you know what the scriptures say about chasing after the wind. It's meaningless. It's vanity. And so we're going to look at this text and we're going to consider two main ideas from it, the struggle for contentment and then the good fight of faith. With that, let's look at the text, 1 Timothy chapter 6 in its entirety. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, And the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is a great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life, which you were called, and about which 
You have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, just a bit of a, an aside, really. Before we look at the main two points about contentment and the fight of faith, I want to look at the first couple of verses here on their own uh, in chapter 6. They probably should have been included in last week's message, frankly. Uh, but I think it works out for us um, good today as they're a bit more touchy and kind of need their own treatment. Um, it is the issue with slaves and masters. Or here it uses the, maybe it says uh, bond servants in your own version. Uh, it's the word doulos in Greek, which is readily translated as the word slave. And so this is a sensitive issue for any time, and, um, but especially for today, I think, in today's culture. A few things have to be in view here. Uh, the Greco-Roman culture involved slavery. It was a normal part of their culture. It had been for centuries. And so with the advent of Christianity, many of those slaves and masters then became Christians. So it was fitting then that Paul would write to them on how they should act toward one another. Believing masters, having believing slaves, or believing slaves with unbelieving masters, or vice versa. The role of slave and master might tend to be contentious at times, as you would imagine. The master owned the slave as property. So Paul is laying out guidelines here for how they should act toward one another. Paul is still asserting authority as an apostle over the slave owner and the slave. Paul is giving them, mass, he's giving them guidelines. This isn't the same as him condoning slavery. We have to understand the difference. Paul wrote this book in a time of slavery. He did not write a book condoning slavery and hoping for it to continue. Also, there were different types of slavery, the kind that resulted from war, which is typically what took place in the culture of the day, um, where the conquering army would come into a place and the, the, the people there left in the country would come back with the conquering army and they would be their slaves. And then there's a kind that results from kidnapping, which we see in our own nation's history. It's spoken of in chapter 1, verse 10, as 
as a sinful thing to be an enslaver or a kidnapper. Sadly, slavery is a part of our history as a nation and as a world even. Uh, People were never meant, meant to be property, but because of the depravity of the lost man and his mind being completely depraved and debased, it is a thing that will continue until the Lord comes back, sadly. It's not good, but it will be a thing. Christians have stood against it even from ancient times. If you read history, it's Christians that got rid of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. It's Christians that have stood against it in our own past and got rid of it. And they should continue to do so today. The Bible doesn't condone slavery. Neither should we. Nor should we allow any thinking or actions that would ever dehumanize the image of God, which is every person on earth. All men are created in God's image and therefore should be regarded with honor and respect. And so with that, I think that handles those first couple verses. And so let's look then at the struggle for contentment. So after uh, the list of how we should treat one another, there in chapter 5 and there in the first couple of verses of chapter 6, how we should deal with conflict in the church, Paul offers these two commandments. There at the end of verse 2, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches something different, what does Paul say about him? Well, he understands nothing. He's puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. I think this is a great example of Paul equating equating his words with the words of Jesus. Why? Well, because Paul's words are God-breathed, inspired by the very word made flesh. Paul's teaching here is the teaching of Christ. Because these are the words of God. So it would make sense that they would sound very similar to us. Not to teach these words is equated with someone having an unhealthy craving for controversy. Is what he says there in verse 4. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels. And he goes on and talking about all these things that would separate. Whereas the true doctrine, what does it do? It has a direct effect on the way that we live our lives. And the lack of doctrine from the teaching of the word is just puffed up words. It's a bunch of fluff. It means nothing. It has no effect on the way that we live our lives. I think this is something that we can all recognize and have heard and have seen before, teaching that leads to nothing but strife and tension. We may not, we may not be able to pick it out, but we could definitely pick out times that we were in churches that had nothing but those things. Anytime the teaching is centered on man rather than Christ, Man has reason to believe that he is more than he actually is. And with this comes all of the tension. Because man begins to believe that he deserves something that he doesn't. In and against his other fellow man. Paul calls it constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. The depravity of our minds can only be fixed with a constant, giant helping of the truth, even when it's hard to swallow. Now, those of us even who are in Christ, we are ones who are constantly recovering from our fallen nature. Our minds easily slip into that place of depravity, and we need a constant helping of the truth to convince us otherwise. When Christians are fed garbage, then garbage is what you should expect to see among them. 
when Christians are fed truth, that group begins then to live in that truth. If you teach a bunch of people that somehow man is the center and that of their own hopes and dreams then are the center of the gospel, those folks will step all over each other to get those things. But if you teach those same people that Christ is the center, then what can they do? Rather than looking at each other, they look up. The focus becomes less about man and more about the Savior of man. Paul qualifies this false teaching. He says, it imagines godliness as a means of gain. Meaning that that by being godly, man can somehow gain materially. That he can somehow gain himself something materially. We get that from the latter context about concerning riches. The idea that man, by doing right and by being right, can somehow be blessed with earthly riches. It's almost as if Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, knew the heart of man. Then as well as today. He knew that there would be teachers that would say stuff just like this, right? That if you're good enough, if you have enough faith, if you give enough money, you're going to inherit some sort of wealth for yourself. And it's always material wealth. It's never anything spiritual. It's always some sort of material blessing for yourself so that you can be personally puffed up as opposed to helping others. The only people that stand to earn wealth from this kind of teaching, as we've seen over and over in our own society, are the ones who teach it and the ones who mislead others. If godliness becomes a means of gain, then it stops being godliness because the motivations stop being about serving our creator and then about serving the creature instead, ourselves. And so how does he counter this? Well, he says, Godliness with contentment, that is a great gain. Verse 6, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. Godliness or holy living with right doctrine gains us the most when we are content with what we have. I think we all understand this because being content with what the Lord has given us is a sign that we trust him. It's a sign that we say to him, I trust that what you have given me is exactly the thing that I need. And you would, if it's not, you would have given me more. We trust him when we, when we put that, when we just are content with the things that we've been given. It's a sign that we truly believe that he has our best interests in mind. So then how does he qualify this contentment? He says food and clothing. And we're good. It's kind of tough, isn't it? If we have our basic needs met, then the rest should be gravy, so to speak. Anything above that is a blessing. And it cannot add, then, to our contentment. And it should not. When we need more than that for contentment, we begin to reveal the idols of our hearts. It follows then that Paul would start talking then about this desire to be rich. 
Jesus spoke about this very idea. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19 to hear to see the words of Jesus concerning this. <clears throat> Many of Paul's teachings here in Jesus are almost word for word. Again, I think it helps us and strengthens the idea to see that Paul is not teaching anything different from Jesus as is often accused in the secular world. They're teaching the same sorts of things here. Matthew 19, starting at verse 16, I'll read this, this whole section. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Again, what is he saying? What godliness can I do in order to have some sort of gain? Paul says there's no gain in that. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you... And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. Fascinating. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, because he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So why did the rich man walk away? Because he didn't want to be stripped down to the basics. He didn't want to be stripped down to those basic things that Paul said, this is all you need. He had great wealth. His contentment then was in those possessions. Notice he attempts to cover his lack of contentment with this false godliness, a list that he had done since his youth, which is incredible that he could stand before Jesus and say that all of those he had followed when Jesus had seen him from day one and even formed him in his mother's womb. So he has this false godliness, this list, but Jesus cuts him off really quickly and exposes him to be an idolater. Someone who's worshiping his possessions rather than his creator, which of course then shows him to be a breaker of the first commandment. Paul says that this, the temptation of money is a snare. He says it plunges people into ruin and destruction there in verse 9. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is repeating what Jesus has said. Because of this, people have wandered away from the faith. It says that they have pierced themselves with many pangs, in my translation. That pangs there is sorrow or grief, guilt. They have saddled themselves with all sorts of sorrow because of this pursuit of wealth. And again, it's not that money is bad. We don't need to get... To do that, I think we all understand this from one degree or another. 
this idea how the pursuit of money is an evil thing, is a bad thing, rather than the pursuit of the Lord. But it's the pursuit of money as an end to itself that leads to death. And that is what Paul is warning us about here. And I think, brothers and sisters, we should stand warned too. This is for all of us. We are all rich by the world's standards. I think anyone, if you ask them, they all, everyone thinks that they're middle class. But uh, considering that most of the world lives in poverty, all of us in this country are quite wealthy. We all have, most, we all have m- much more than most of the world could even dream of. We live like kings and queens in our palaces with our big yards and our cars and all these things that we have. Therefore, all of us then wrestle with this idea of contentment. It's even in the deepest parts of our souls. It's who, it's who we are. When Paul says that it has caused people to walk away, I think we can all say that we've seen this personally. We've seen people walk away from their faith because of their possessions or because of their need for possessions or their pursuit of something worldly. I think we can all relate even directly with this, with this temptation. We all can, definitely. Satan has dressed up money and fame in such fine clothing that even the most stalwart can be wooed by its charms. And I think we get that. It takes a constant devotion, a regular denial of our own desires to overcome it. A constant reminder that this is something that we face. We all have to, we all have to be on guard. None of us can say, no, nope, that whole money thing doesn't bother me. Yes, it does. Because you're living and breathing. We all will pursue other things rather than Christ. And so any time that our eyes drift towards ourselves rather than our Savior, we're in danger. But when we surround ourselves with teaching that causes us to do this, it may be too late. However, Jesus finished his teaching there in Matthew 19 and 25 and 26. The apostles said... They were concerned. Well, how can anybody get to heaven? must have concerned them personally as well. How can any of us even dream of getting to heaven? And what did Jesus say? With man, this is impossible. But with God, anything is possible. And so thanks be to God that he has made it possible for idolatrous money lovers like you and me to have eternal life. And that brings us to the second point, the good fight of faith. Paul says in verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. The man of woman from God flees from these temptations rather than teasing with them. You know, rather than tempting ourselves with them, rather than skirting the edge, we flee away from them. And he gives us a list. Again, we like these sorts of lists, but this is not an easy one. He says, what should we pursue? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Rather than the riches of the world, he points to the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. The fact that the Spirit is changing us to be like these things more and more. Not only what we want to use to serve Him, but how could we serve one another? How could we better serve the world with these things? Again, money has some value, but what value does money have where there is no love and no gentleness? 
And so he then breaks into this benediction concerning our Lord Jesus and a charge for us too, a reminder that the Lord was faced with these sorts of temptations himself and fled from them. I mean, think of when the Lord went to the cross. What could he have done? He could have called the angels down. He could have snapped and the whole world would have disappeared. He could have done anything. He could have rigged the political system of the day. He could have hired an army. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Is he not wealthy enough to just get himself out of uh, this trouble? Of course he was. Of course he could have done that. But he didn't. He stayed the faith, and he, rather than turning away, he went ahead and done what he should have done. He says he made a good confession. He could have been made king by the people. Just read through the Gospels. The people sought to make him king time and time again, but he escaped from them. He followed his father, and now he sits at the right hand of the father. And who is he? King of kings and Lord of lords. Then he charges us, the rich, in this present age, verse 17, to set our hopes on God. Our riches are not to be in the world, but of the world to come. Again, this harkens to the teachings of our Lord Jesus himself. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. I think it's helpful for us to to hear this from the mouth of our Lord himself. Matthew chapter 6. Nineteen through twenty-four, he says, "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body." So if your eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then, if then the the light is in you, or in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus here tells us to store up our treasures in heaven. Why? Because the world is fleeting. Chasing after worldly riches is like chasing after the wind. Solomon tells us it's meaningless. It's vanity. The love of money will not only lead us astray, and I want you to hear this from the words of Jesus, it not only leads us astray, but it causes us to despise God. Because we're devoted to it, we will then despise our Creator. It's like an idol Idols do not share the stage. Either we master it or it will master us. And it will cause us to turn on our Lord and it will only cause us grief. And then he gives a final warning to Timothy. And I think this really sums up the book well. He says, guard the deposit entrusted to you, using another money term there. Rather than unimportant talk and knowledge, regard the truth that leads to life. Like Timothy, we are called to teach 
and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in a world that would seek another Savior and regularly does, be it money, self-worth, prestige, anything other than giving glory to God. And so in conclusion, as we close out this book, let us remember the very plain teaching of it. We are sinners in need of the grace of God, and He has made that provision for us in the person of work of Jesus Christ. So we are then called to do His work, and in it, we have called to act like we ought to, as a child of the living God should act. We are to love one another, and so the world will see it. So brothers and sisters, let us cast off these idols that would ensnare us, the pursuit of possessions that are of this world only. Let us also show one another the idols that would cause us to run slowly or not at all. I think it's, I think we have a responsibility to one another to help us see those things. Let us join together that as we go into a world that's hurting and seeking a Savior. We know that Savior. His name is Jesus. So let us proclaim then the name of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we come to you as people who readily pursue the idols of our hearts. We pursue those things because we don't trust you. And so, Lord, we are sorry. Lord, fix us so that we might follow after you, that we might cast down our idols. Lord, cast down our idols for us. Lord, teach us that we might never stray from you, but yet instead love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love one another as ourselves. It's in your name we pray. Amen.